This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate Hopkins. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's... Oh, boy, should I even try and say your name, or do you want to... I should have asked before the episode. <laughs> yeah, that, that's okay. My, my name is Bujidar, but everybody can call me Buck. It's much more Western language friendly. Oh, there you go. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Who you are, why you're famous, all that stuff? Oh, that is going to be a very short introduction because I'm not famous at all and nobody knows who I am. <laughs> but I'm the editor of the community Ruby Style Guide, the community Rails Style Guide, and the author of Rubocop. I guess if somebody knows who I am, maybe it's because of uh, one of those three projects. So uh, pretty simple. I'm not certain whether somebody cares about my professional achievements or not. So probably we can uh, we can skip them. Apart from my Ruby work, I'm also very passionate about Emacs. I believe it is one of it is the one true editor that is going to bring balance to the source. Uh, and I, I work a lot on, on Emacs itself. Uh, <laughs> nice extensions for Emacs. Uh, Stuff like this. Uh, I'm very passionate about uh, Lisp programming in general. I do a lot of open source work uh, pertaining to Clojure. I maintain a dozen of uh, tooling-related uh, projects there, like things you need to build an IDE, plus one IDE for Clojure named Cider. And I, I guess I guess that's all. Nice. Yeah, I use Rubocop on my projects. I don't know if Nate or Dave do? I've used it on a few projects. Interestingly enough, I, I'd love to get your take on, uh, I, I found another project that actually uh, formats as well called Rufo. I don't know if you're aware of that one, but uh, on my new project, we're giving that a, a spin just to see what we think. It's, it's a bit more opinionated um, than RuboCop, so that it gives you less, less configurable options on it. Oh, maybe that's a good thing because less configuration options, less problems to worry about. I'm familiar with Trufo. They have taken an approach which is pretty similar to some project for JavaScript. I don't remember, was it pretty something or beautify something or whatever. The code is just reduced to its abstract syntax tree. And then new code is generated straight from uh, the AST. Uh, Rubocop doesn't do this. Rubocop actually modifies uh, the original source code 
in an effort to preserve everything about the layout that the regeneration step might not care about, but you care about. Obviously, it's just as easy to generate the code from scratch, but we felt that rewriting the existing code was uh, an approach more in line with Ruby's philosophy philosophy of giving more options to to anybody. In the early days of RuboCopy, it didn't have any configuration at all. It was extremely opinionated. It was just doing exactly what uh, the Ruby style guide was outlining. But many people weren't very happy about this. And uh, you know what Matt says, uh, we have to bring joy and happiness to the programmers. So, so, so this caused uh, the shift in direction. Yeah. So for the listeners who don't know what RuboCop is, would you mind giving a crash course definition of what it is and why it's important? Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, um, RuboCop is three things. Think number one, it's a replacement for Ruby minus W. It's a lint tool. It checks your code for potentially serious problems. Maybe you meant to express one thingy, but accidentally you expressed uh, something else, uh, no, not being in the right block context, for instance, or something along those lines or you made some potential security mistake. The other thing that Trubocop is, is an uh, automatic uh, checker for all of the best practices outlined uh, in the community Ruby style guide, uh, things pertaining to the layout of the code, things pertaining to what are the preferable classes, methods uh, you should be using if you're facing too much choices some purely stylistic stuff, uh, like like making uh, numeric literals prettier or uh, lambda literals consistent and and so on. And uh, the the third thing that RuboCop is, uh, it's also a formatter for uh, Ruby code. Um, you You can just feed it ugly code and RuboCop is going to spin out uh, hopefully beautiful hopefully beautiful RuboCop and uh, RubyCode. And all of this is extremely, extremely configurable. We organize the project into something we call COPS. And COPS made, uh, uh, may make departments. That There are many police uh, puns uh, throughout the RuboCop code base, which makes it confusing to explain it to... <laughs> Uh, to regular humans and from time to time confusing even for me to understand it but uh, it is what it is Uh, so we have many of those uh, good cops who know how to um, check for different uh, common styles that exist in the Ruby community for instance you might prefer single quoted string literals by default or double quoted string literals by default so we have uh, configuration options to inform both styles you can auto-correct some of the offenses that are unambiguous and so on. Hopefully all of this uh, makes sense and is a decent overview about the project. I'm a little curious about the origins of the project. Did it start kind of more on the stylistic side to kind of reduce the, the bike shedding? Or were you more interested in um, the performance and security aspects of it? Uh, it, it started mostly on the stylistic side of things. I joined uh, one startup a while ago, and I, I was the only Ruby developer on the team. I mean, 
we were all Ruby developers on the team, but I was the only person who had actually done any Ruby be- beforehand. And uh, a lot of my work was just uh, explaining to my colleagues uh, some really basic uh, things about common Ruby idioms. Uh, most of my colleagues came from different uh, backgrounds that are not Ruby, obviously, if they weren't Ruby developers like PHP, Java, C Sharp. And you, you know what they say, it's very easy to write um, any language in any language if uh, this is so you know. So we can give you Ruby, you're going to produce Java code with it if uh, your all your background is in Java and uh, and, and so on. So uh, for a while, I was just explaining on, old co- on every code review. That's a good idea, that's a bad idea, and uh, so on. At some point, this became uh, really tiresome, and I, I just compiled uh, a short internal style guide document, uh, which uh, we wanted all of the engineers to be familiar with. And I, I don't remember how this became public. Maybe the CTO at the time suggested that we should share it or something along those lines. But um, I think I blogged about it or something like this. The guide became uh, pretty popular. A lot of people started contributing to it. And uh, one day somebody submitted uh, a ticket. I can dig it up uh, if you want, saying that the, the guide was very useful, but it was so big that nobody now can remember all of the rules. So, so it would be really nice uh, to have a tool which... Uh, which checks the, the rules for you. And this is how, how Rubocop was born. Uh, it, it started pretty small, and as the project was uh, gaining uh, traction, users, the, the scope uh, grew and grew. Uh, first, it was uh, only stylistic checks. Uh, then we re-implemented all of uh, Ruby's uh, lins with Rubocop, uh, ma- making them significantly nicer, better messages, uh, uh, better location tracking, uh, and stuff like this. Then we added a lot of uh, Rails checks. Then we added performance stuff, security stuff, uh, layout stuff, and all the jazz. Then people started writing plugins for Rubocop, like uh, Rubocop RSpec. And, you know, (laughs) somehow we ended up here. If somebody had told me eight, nine years ago that out of this tiny style guide, uh, something uh, so big would come out, I would have never believed it. (laughs) Yeah, you know, overall, and I think it's important to remember that these are just kind of like guidelines. They're not set in stone and you should adopt whatever your team is really comfortable with doing. Using double quotes or, you know, single quotes. You know, I think that's important to remember that as long as the project is consistent and overall using decent practices, you know, I'm usually okay with the code. Like one of the things that I always disable in RoboCop is the the line length. So that is the you know, pain with, in my existence, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I hate that one. You know, the 80 character line length, I think. Uh, for me, it's really only useful whenever I'm recording a screencast on Drift or Ruby or doing a presentation 
and PowerPoint because then you are really more limited to your real estate. But today with high resolution monitors, you know, 1080p or plus, it really is kind of one of those uh, more annoyances nowadays. But, you know, just my opinion. But I'm curious, why would you disable it? Uh, Why don't you simply extend the line length to something that you're more comfortable with? Uh, The 80 80 characters line length might seem somewhat arbitrary uh, in present days. You mentioned that the monitors are significantly more advanced, higher resolution, blah, blah, blah. But on my super fancy MacBook in front of me, when I split my screen in two, I can fit exactly 80 character lines on the two sides of the split screen. So uh, I use this mostly as a guideline, what can fit on my screen when I'm, when I'm working uh, in my typical mode. Usually you're editing uh, on the left and you're checking something else on the right and so on. And I've noticed that other people do it. So even if 80 is too little, I do believe it makes sense to draw the line somewhere. There is also a lot of research showing that people read much faster vertically than horizontally. So if if you have a few very annoying uh, lines that are significantly longer than the others, you are uh, are ruining the reading flow of your uh, readers. So ah, I'm not trying to convince people to use this. I'm just saying that you can, you can always find arguments uh, for or against pretty much uh, everything in existence. Yeah, but you could also try using like VS Code instead of Emacs. I'm just saying, like you know, of course, <laughs> scrolling is so much better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I hope you are. I hope you are because I'm very <laughs> religious about Emacs. My devotion is unquestionable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you the the plugin that I can't live without on VS Code is the Emacs key bindings. Oh, is is this thing in VS Code really good? I keep hearing that more and more people are using it, but uh, I cannot understand why, because from what I gathered, it's something super similar to Atom or Atom, however it is mm-hmm. pronounced. So I, I don't really understand what's the what's the selling point if it is mostly the same thing here. So my main thing with Atom was I was a early adopter many years ago, and it was just uh, hella slow. The amount of memory and sluggishness that it would eventually cause as I'm developing, it just it wasn't usable. So I had tried it from Sublime Text, and Sublime Text was really awesome. But I kind of got annoyed with the like four year long beta that it was in. So I eventually had switched over to VS Code. And once I got over the brand name, the Microsoft brand name of it, I actually really like it as my main editor. So I switched between VS Code and Vim depending on my exact situation. But those are really the two that I use most often. Mm. Is that it's a, a bit more approachable than Vim or Emacs for for newcomers uh, to programming. Uh, maybe maybe the extensibility of it is also a bit more approachable. I wouldn't say it's any more extensible. It's just uh, it's just kind of easier to dip your toes in and get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely understand. Uh, I started out with Vim, and I really loved it, but I hated one thing, that uh, you had to extend it with Vim script, which is such a horrible language. Uh, 
I, I guess that's the reason why five people wrote pretty much 90% of all of the popular Vim extensions because they were the only ones strong enough to survive uh, the, the Vim script. Uh, then for a while I was using uh, one editor called Komodo. I don't know whether it still exists or not, but what I liked about it was that the extensions were written in JavaScript and this was so much more approachable. So so I assume that's, uh, that's the same thing that works well for uh, for Atom, for uh, VS Code, uh, and any other editor using JavaScript as the extension language. Man, I haven't heard of Komodo in a long, long time. <laughs> uh, I remember when I first started out developing, that was one of the IDs I checked out. And I had originally gone from, uh, tried out Komodo, but then switched to RubyMine. And then from RubyMine, just didn't really care for the sluggishness. And then went to Sublime Text and then to VS Code. Memories. <laughs> uh, I used to do some Perl uh, before I was doing Ruby, and uh, Komodo was a very famous editor for Perl that they also had some ID versions. So this is what uh, got me there. But uh, now it feels like memories from another life. It was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, back on uh, RuboCop, are you finding that the, the adoption now is uh, is still driven by kind of teaching idiomatic Ruby uh, to people new to the language, or is there more enthusiasm for the hints around uh, security and the cops that kind of help you uh, tailor your code so it's a bit more performant? I think it's not that much about the stylistic stuff at this point. I think that people really care about having uh, performance code, uh, about uh, best practices and so on. But I, I also noticed that uh, one driver of the growth recently was internal cops that companies developed uh, themselves. Many companies happen to have uh, some, some libraries they added on top of Rails or whatever uh, framework that uh, they're using. I know that uh, we have such libraries in our company and we have some checks to make sure that people are using our libraries the way we intended them to be used. Uh, uh, we are also using uh, custom cops to migrate some of the legacy codes to code that is uh, using the new libraries on a very big code base. Uh, you can save so much time if you just sit down and... Um, uh, work a little bit of magic with uh, Rubocop because also at the heart of Rubocop, uh, we have created uh, a very powerful abstraction over the AST uh, um, in Ruby. There is the parser gem, which drives all of the magic. Uh, Rubocop was the very first project uh, which adopted the parser gem. O originally, Rubocop was using uh, Ruby's built-in Reaper parser which has one advantage that it comes with Ruby, so you know it is more or less always correct as uh, it is derived from the actual MRI parser. But uh, on the other hand, MRI had a really horrible data representation of the AST. So creating any sort of complicated um, checks with it was a real nightmare. I, I had uh, done seven or eight uh, versions of Rubocop uh, based on Reaper. 
and uh, I, I was extremely, extremely frustrated with it. Some deeply nested arrays, uh, no location, limited location metadata, uh, different representations of very similar nodes. For instance, uh, in uh, in the AST representation of Ripper, a prefix uh, notation if and a postfix notation if have have different nodes although the semantics of those nodes are more or less exactly the same. And uh, I, I was filing some tickets uh, for uh, Reaper improvements on the Ruby bug tracker when somebody mentioned that uh, one guy is working on this um, new parser, uh, which, uh, which was really cool. And, and I checked it out. Uh, I, I got excited. The parser wasn't completely finished. Uh, and because nobody had used it on a large scale, there were many, many bugs uh, that me and the Robocop uh, users unwillingly found and helped, uh, helped to fix uh, in the parser gem. But the library is amazing. It had the best and most responsive uh, a maintainer ever, uh, Piotr Zotov, uh, he, he felt like a robot. I would report a bug and he would issue a bug fix release in like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. A really amazing uh, maintainer. So th this was uh, the, the first win of the growing adoption of Rubocop that the Ruby community ended up with a really great alternative of, uh, of Reaper. And afterwards, um, within Rubocop, we created a layer on top of uh, a parser and its AST library, which allows you to manipulate abstract syntax trees like regular ex expressions. Uh, we call it uh, AST patterns, somewhat uh, uninspiringly, but you can describe uh, the shape of some code and this is automatically going to generate the, the necessary matchers. Matchers are so some Ruby methods. And uh, this allowed us to compress code that was hundreds of lines to code that was uh, dozens of lines. Uh, really powerful stuff. And uh, w when you need uh, so something to inspect your custom code or to rewrite your custom code, you probably want to be using uh, something like Rubocop's AST patterns uh, instead of uh, a raw AST. And probably we should extract this from Rubocop at, at, at some point, but uh, that, that's a different topic. Uh, also, Rubocop provides a lot of infrastructure um, about uh, gradual cleanup of your code. Uh, you can auto-detect the code style um, of your um, of your project, you can start immediately enforcing what is consistent in your code base, and then you can gradually start uh, applying COPS one by one for from this starting point, so you wouldn't have any shocking changes. So, so that's uh, pretty cool, and because there are now many libraries that provide RuboCop extensions, that's an, another thing uh, going for us. If you're using RSpec uh, and you want to be using uh, the, the best RSpec uh, pr practices, you just install Rubocop RSpec and uh, so, so some magic happens. So, so that's pretty great. Um, the, the performance uh, related functionality was kind of problematic, actually. 
because it's so dependent on the versions of MRI, we would benchmark on certain versions that, you know, what we suggest is a really great idea. Then the core team would fix this. And on the next version, people start complaining. Okay, that's not really fast. Why is Robocop suggesting to me to rewrite the code if it's not more efficient? And, and keeping track of this is uh, extremely painful. Uh, especially if somebody is targeting uh, multiple Ruby releases like uh, most libraries are doing. So um, we we are really wondering how exactly to approach uh, the issue of performance. Uh, uh, probably we are going to attach some extra metadata to all of the performance scopes uh, where we explicitly list uh, the Ruby versions for which we know that something is really going to yield uh, performance benefits um, versus something that uh, is questionable, unproven, or, or, or something along those lines. So, so the performance aspect turned out to be trickier than uh, we expected. And on the security front, uh, there, there is always opposition from people who prefer convenience over security, you'd be, you, you probably won't be uh, surprised to learn that the majority of developers, when given the choice uh, whether to secure something properly or to make something as convenient as possible for them, would take uh, the, the, the latter option. And probably that's why we so often uh, uh, read about some epic security breaches. Uh, security is always an afterthought in our industry until until the hits the fan. <laughs> yeah. And that's why some people get hit with like a ten thousand dollar AWS bill. Well I, I think that's that's you know being lucky I can imagine much much more horrible things uh, happening. Uh, we were talking today with some colleagues uh, about uh, the, the former company of one of the colleagues, and he mentioned that uh, the CEO there accidentally published in a gist uh, the AW production credentials of the company. So I, I can imagine that the bill was their last concern here. <laughs> Are, have you found that RuboCop and the things that you've learned with it and, and kind of bring back to Ruby, is it influencing the direction of MRI or, or the design of the language at all? Well, I can only hope so, but I do not have uh, empirical data to prove this. Uh, I know that after all, I was complaining at several conferences uh, that Ruby should get a filter alias for uh, find all and select. They finally added it in 2.6. So I like to believe that somebody was listening to me. <laughs> Uh, we have been chatting with Mats uh, at, at a few conferences, um, and he mentioned that he doesn't view style the, the, the same way I do. <laughs> so uh, obviously, he's not uh, super eager to make changes on this front. Uh, I have always considered that giving people too many options, which are basically the same, is mostly a problem because. It's a recipe for bike shedding and uh, waste of time. I, I know that he believes that uh, 
the, the nuances of the context are really important and uh, in, in some case uh, race might be a better fit, in some case fail and, uh, and stuff like this. I care just about the semantics. I don't care about the nuances. I also am very frustrated that we have so much functionality in the language, which uh, basically nobody uses and many people don't even know it exists, but uh, we are cutting it uh, along for some unknown reason. For instance, most people don't even know that Ruby has a second uh, uh, syntax uh, for, for comments. Uh, the, the block command syntax, but nobody uses it because it's kind of weird. If the block command doesn't start at the very beginning of the line, it's a syntax error. So you, you cannot put indented block commands. Um, the, the core team has been unwilling to fix this and unwilling to drop this. And uh, this begs the question, okay, wh what are we supposed to do with it? So even though Rubocop uh, hasn't really influenced the language, I think it really influenced uh, the way the language uh, is being used. We keep some track of statistics about uh, changes to the configuration uh, uh, that uh, Rubocop users are making uh, just by working with the GitHub uh, the data warehouse. And it seems that many, many of the cops uh, are never disabled and their uh, defaults are never uh, changed. So we are pretty certain that this has become the gold standard for uh, certain idiom, idioms and stylistics, uh, stylistic uh, uh, approaches in Ruby. So I, I think that uh, we are paving the way in this manner for uh, some things to eventually be deprecated from Ruby. I'm a big believer uh, that changes should be happening only in a Christian-wise manner. We shouldn't be dropping stuff. Uh, we shouldn't be making breaking changes. But at some point, we should start deprecating things that uh, we know didn't work out and uh, we are probably better off without them. Hey, folks, have you tried out RubyMine? RubyMine is an IDE dedicated to Ruby and Rails development. It allows you to quickly find and fix code smells, refactor code, and develop faster thanks to smart auto-completion suggestions. RubyMine comes with a powerful GUI-based testing and debugging suites. With three major releases a year, the IDE continuously becomes more robust and adds more features. Learn more and get a 30-day trial at devchat.tv slash RubyMine. Would you recommend the, uh, the Rails the Rails style guide, if you're building a Rails project, is it I mean, is that just something that we should start as our baseline and then just kind of customize it to our team? Or do you think it's good enough for most projects? I, I think it is good enough for most projects because uh, a lot of people participate in its creation. At, at this point, uh, we are reasonably confident that uh, the, the Ruby style guide and the Rails style guide really reflect uh, the community's opinion. Uh, because uh, for a while I was the only editor, people would say, okay, th those are uh, bugs, personal preferences. But trust me, a, a lot of the items there are not my personal preferences at all. I, I just, uh, I just uh, agreed that, okay, that's, uh, that's what the community does. That's what uh, we are going to prescribe. Uh, we, we, should, we should be unifying, we should be seeking uh, consensus. 
That being said, if you have very strong preferences and if you get, can get your team to agree on those, uh, it's completely fine to be, to be modifying uh, uh, the, the, the style guide. I think Dave already mentioned something uh, along those lines. That's, that's a good starting point. And if you don't know uh, Rails well, that's an amazing starting point. But if you feel you're yourself an expert, uh, if, you, if you think that you know what you're doing is better uh, uh, than the common prescription, you should totally go ahead and uh, do your own thing. In the end of the day, I, I think that it's much more important to have consistency within a project and within an organization, ideally, uh, then what exactly you are doing. As long as it is consistent, you're doing great. Sure, that, that there are some level of greatness, but uh, let's just get to great, and we are going to take it from there one step at a time. So I've been using Rubocop, and... You know, as I said, I've I've actually got a plugin that just runs it on um, my files when I save them in uh, Visual Studio Code. And one and and I don't know if you've covered this because my connection just dropped off a couple of times. But there are a few things in there that I've run into that are somewhat annoying because it gives me an error message. One of them is the line length. The other one is the description at the beginning of a class. And sometimes it it picks it up, and sometimes it there's like a an extra carriage return or something in there makes it so that it doesn't quite pick it up and i think i'm using annotate models or something and so it, it doesn't do it quite the same way have, have you run into any of these kinds of things is this a question for me if so not otherwise i would have fixed it by now so if i if i have a an issue with one of the rules can i modify the rule uh yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, there are varying degrees of modifying uh, the rule. I don't remember what exactly were the configuration options, for instance, for the class uh, documentation, but uh, th- there are some global things like uh, you can ignore some rule locally within a file with uh, special metadata. If you don't want to put uh, the metadata in your source code, you can uh, exclude certain files in the configuration of the COPs. Every COP uh, understands an exclude and an include uh, directives uh, that basically limit it, its scope. Uh, also, that there is one really crazy feature about almost uh, nobody knows. <laughs> um, the configuration files uh, of Rubocop are searched um, hierarchically. So, you, you can put um, one Rubocop YAML in your RSpec folder and mm-hmm. another uh, in, in your uh, root uh, folder of the project. And uh, when you're working on the specs, Rubocop is going to pick up the file that's closer. So, so there you can have very relaxed style, but you can have significantly stricter style uh, uh, when it comes to your. Uh, your, your business logic. And uh, the, a very common use case for this was that uh, specs usually need to have uh, very long descriptions so to, for, for the descriptions to be meaningful. 
And in the specs, you can go and put nine level disabled or 120 or uh, whatever. And uh, that's, uh, that, that's pretty cool. But we, we really made it uh, very flexible. Um, I just think that uh, nobody took the time to read the rather lengthy manual that goes with it. Right. Some of your conference talks, you, you touched on the future of Ruby and the future of Rails. I'd love to get kind of a summation of your thoughts of where you think the language is going, what its future is like, and, and also the future of Rails and other Ruby frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of my favorite discussion topics. So <laughs> I'm happy you ask about this. Well, I, I'm a little bit worried about uh, the, the future of uh, Ruby today because I see that Mats is talking a lot about the maturity of the language, the ecosystem, and that's great. But there isn't a clear vision as to where we are going. That there are a couple of cornerstones for Ruby Tree that he he's repeating on most of his conference talks in the past three, four, five years. Like we are going to make. Uh, Ruby, uh, Ruby three three times faster than Ruby two. Uh, we are going to have a better concurrency and parallelism model. Uh, we are um, we we are going to clean up some legacy stuff, but he never. Uh, we we are going to have a uh, duck typing for uh, functionality for some definition of the duck typing inference functionality um, for for whatever this. This might mean to different people, but th- there is very little concrete uh, uh, concreteness to, to the plans. Uh, for instance, uh, that there was never a clear plan about how Ruby Tree was going to become uh, three times faster than uh, than Ruby Two. I, I think that uh, at the beginning, uh, when the three by three initiative was announced, many people got excited uh, that some big internal changes were going to happen to MRI that were going to uh, give us this uh, speed boost. But uh, this wasn't really followed up by anything specific. Uh, uh, There were uh, several incremental uh, performance changes, 5% here, 10% here. And uh, Matt started joking or maybe saying it seriously, uh, re- repeating on many talks that uh, we should start uh, counting the 300% from the release of uh, Ruby 2.0. And it's not like Ruby 3 is going to be three times faster than uh, whatever the final uh, release in the Ruby 2 series is. So um, <laughs> many people started speculating that if Ruby 3 takes... Uh, 15 years to be developed, we are organically going to get the 300%, maybe a bit uh, more, and that's worrisome. Uh, the same about the duck inference. Uh, for a couple of years, Mats was talking at conferences that he was considering uh, adding optional static typing to the language. Then one day he said that he reconsidered and he's now aiming for uh, uh, duck inference. Which is uh, which is cool because it, it requires less effort uh, from us from the developers. But then this wasn't followed by any specific details. So go figure how this is going to look. Uh, 
who is going to work on it, uh, when is it happening. Uh, uh, the concurrency and parallelism are starting to take some shape in the form of the guilds, but there is still no commitment that that's going to be um, the, the, the promised solution. Uh, this is still developed mostly by one person out of the main uh, Ruby source tree. So that's, that's, kind, of, uh, that's kind of worrisome uh, to me. And when it comes to the cleanup, I don't think that Mats has committed to a single thingy that's going to be deprecated, fixed, uh, uh, or, or, or something along those lines. So I have been talking uh, a little bit at conferences about uh, a different uh, roadmap for the future of Ruby, a roadmap which is uh, actually concrete and uh, that I think makes a lot more sense implementing uh, persistent data structures alongside uh, the existing data structures in the language. Uh, persistent data structures are going to tremendously help us uh, to, to have concurrent applications written in uh, Ruby, safe concurrent applications. That is, obviously, we can write whatever we want even now. I think that we really need to commit to the concurrency model, to the concurrency API. And I think that instead of devising something custom uh, for Ruby, what uh, essentially guilds are, we, we should be trying to fit uh, a tried and true concurrency abstraction, like uh, communicating sequential processes from go from closure, into in, into Ruby, so this is not going to introduce a lot of cognitive uh, cognitive overhead for uh, for Ruby developers. Nobody likes custom stuff that are used uh, just in the context of a single language. I also think we should uh, commit to what exactly are we fixing, deprecating. Uh, if it were me, for instance, I would fix uh, the block syntax command. I would either deprecate for real uh, the, the loop keyword, or uh, I, I am going to fix the scoping of the variables uh, inside it so it doesn't leak uh, outside of for I mean, not loop, sorry about this. So I would have fixed this. I, I would have re-examined uh, a lot of uh, inconsistent APIs like uh, the predicate zero returns true or false. The, the predicate non-zero returns either its receiver or nil, which is uh, so, so confusing to so, so many people. Uh, so so I, I really think we sh that there should be some sit-down uh, analysis of the usage uh, patterns of, of the language and uh, a cleanup and realignment that goes with it. I also really want to restructure significantly the standard library. Uh, some, some cool things like uh, the, the set class should be promoted to the core library, should be given uh, uh, literal syntax because we, we cannot uh, be encouraging people to forever do um, set uh, arithmetics using arrays. Uh, that's, that's kind of crazy. But uh, pretty much everybody does this uh, in Ruby. Um, we shouldn't be cutting a million of legacy libraries that nobody is using 
with uh, the, the standard distribution. The standard library should be significantly reduced in size. Everything non-essential should just be um, extracted as uh, standalone gems. If somebody needs them, they just install it. Uh, I don't really consider this uh, breaking uh, compatibility as everybody is using uh, Bundler anyway. So adding one, two more lines to your gem file is, is not really going to be the the end of, end of the world. So, so I would really like to see some efforts in this direction and uh, maybe so some more exciting changes to, to happen as well because all of this is just catching up to the competition. But uh, I remember the days where uh, Ruby was uh, the heart of innovation in the IT community. And I, I want to see those days uh, again. Uh, Mats has been speaking a lot recently about surviving, but I believe that all of us should be speaking just about uh, thriving, about uh, a strong Ruby, strong Ruby community, uh, a lot of excitement and passion about the language and not uh, uh, going to Ruby conferences and have uh, nine out of 10 talks there be about uh, Rust, Elixir, Go, Crystal, and uh, so on. Uh, I think that the fact that uh, on many Ruby events, people are barely talking about Ruby is uh, is very it's a very bad sign for the health of the community. Yes, Ruby is not going away anytime soon, but uh, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be worried. And I haven't forgotten the second the part of the question about Rails. I can pause here if somebody wants to <laughs> follow up uh, on the Ruby stuff or I can power through with Rails. I, I would just love to... I mean, all, a lot of the things you're talking about really make sense to me. I mean, is, is there any desire out there for people to fork Ruby and start adding some of this in or pulling some of this out? Depending on uh, I think that there is some desire to do it, but I think that this is going to be an epic mistake because at a time of weakness in the community, the worst thing you can do is uh, be divisive uh, in the community. I, I think that uh, what we really need is uh, a, a better uh, stewardship of the, the language uh, you know, so, so some more clarity about the goals that have to be achieved, the problems that have to be solved. Because I honestly believe that uh, Ruby's development is happening more or less on autopilot right now. It's governed by some really great individuals, but uh, they're focused on solving uh, the, their own problems, which are not necessarily the problems of uh, the, the broader Ruby community. When I was in Japan for Ruby Kaigi, I, I learned uh, a lot about how Ruby Ruby was stewarded and many of uh, the, the findings there were uh, really worrisome to me. Like uh, most of the uh, design discussions are, are happening in person in Tokyo. Almost everybody on the core team is Japanese and it, it's very hard for outsiders to be uh, included. I know of a few foreigners who um, are part of the core team and I think that all of them are fluent in Japanese. So you can say that uh, the, the bar for entry is uh, 
is kind of high and uh, that's um, that's a bit uh, worrisome. I, I also wonder is somebody on the core team even listening uh, to all of the sign signals that, uh, that the community might be sending to them? Uh, that's, uh, that's something that really, really bothers me and uh, makes me somewhat skeptical about the future because I would have expected more efforts towards keeping the momentum, keeping the growth uh, of Ruby at a time where there is better competition than ever and uh, a stronger competition than ever. Mm-hmm. So uh, transition that to Rails now in terms of the future of Rails. <laughs> uh, so in terms of Ruby... I can I mean, complain first, here. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some big companies that like GitHub just got on 5.2, right? And uh, Shopify as well, Basecamp. So you've got a lot of companies making significant money that have large user bases that are, have a vested interest in both the framework and in the language. How do you see that yeah. influence the future? I believe that those companies are the, the main thing that keeps the Ruby community going right now. Uh, unfortunately, Rails is still the QR uh, use case for Ruby. Uh, it, I was hoping that um, at some point uh, Ruby's usage was going to divest uh, in more avenues, uh, like becoming a popular uh, uh, language for server-side scripting, uh, system administration, something like uh, Perl Python. I was hoping that it can go big uh, in the browser with uh, OpenRB, or uh, it can go big... Uh, on the desktop scene with MacRuby or uh, with uh, Ruby Motion uh, on the mobile scene. But still, almost all of the uh, Ruby developers are Rails developers. And uh, that, that's the biggest tribute to the, to the might uh, and the prowess of uh, Rails. Uh, it's, it's probably uh, the, the most recognized uh, web framework in the world, the most widely used. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's really very versatile and uh, it, it, gets, uh, it gets the job done. Uh, the company I work for uh, is also a, a big uh, Rails user. I think we have one of the largest Rails code bases in the world. <laughs> we are not exactly proud of this uh, because uh, huge monolithic Rails applications are nothing to be proud of these days, uh, but the, the fact remains the same. Um, I think that uh, Rails is not suffering from the project problems that are plaguing uh, Ruby. Uh, the, the leadership, the vision of Rails is very strong. Uh, you can you always know where the framework is going. Uh, DHH uh, he has been doing a great job adding some really important functionality he, here and there. Maybe maybe the pace uh, at which the adoption of new functionality was happening uh, was slower than some of us wanted it to be. But uh, the fact remains uh, that. Uh, you can see that the leadership of Rails really cares about the opinion of the community. Things are constantly progressing uh, at a good pace in the right direction. 
There are some questionable choices here and there, like Turbo Links 1, 2, 3, and still nobody uses those. Uh, and uh, it, it was really funny for me to see that one of the key features for uh, Rails 6 was going to be a rich text editor at a time where it, it seems people stopped using those, but it cannot be all uh, rainbows and unicorns. I think that for what it is, uh, Rails is almost perfect. A full-stack web development framework that's uh, pretty configurable, that that can target a lot of uh, problems uh, and has infinite use cases. I'm, I'm wondering, however, whether the time of the full-stack web frameworks uh, has passed because, at least in our company, we are gradually moving away from the traditional usage of Rails and we just use it as an API to, to power standalone single-page applications or some other uh, the data consumers. For us at this point, Rails has become uh, mostly a JSON API provider, a GraphQL uh, pro- provider. We don't really care at all about uh, the, the view layer. So, so, so I think that um, it would be really nice if future uh, versions of um, Rails kind of uh, respond to this trend, uh, make it even easier to, to build uh, uh, decoupled uh, web applications with a completely static front-end and Rails just being, uh, be being the API provider there. I, I think that's going to be pretty cool, but I don't think it's going to happen in the foreseeable future looking at uh, the the signs and indications that we've been receiving from uh, DHH and the rest of the core team. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common pattern that a lot of of companies have moved towards uh, using Rails as an API layer. Although I still have hopes that that we may see something like LiveView um, for Phoenix. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's not even released yet, but it's... uh, a server rendering solution that kind of stacks up against uh, a single page app strategy, uh, maintaining your server rendered uh, view templates. So I have hopes that we'll see something like that for Rails. I guess the trick there is just making sure it would perform. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. If if people are looking for more information on that, we did an episode on Elixir Mix with Chris McCord and talked about that. So um, we'll, we'll make sure we get a link to that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, we, we had a long talk about what it is and how it works. Well, anything else we want to jump on? We're, we're about at the time limit anyway. I need to do picks, but I want to make sure we cover everything. Not nothing from my side. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, 
FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So what do I want to pick today? So the other day, my wife's fan got a flat tire. You know, it's a brand new tires. It's a new van. So I was kind of bummed out. So I had a air compressor handy and I was able to reinflate the tire, but you could hear that sound of the air just leaking out. So we got a pretty nasty hole. So I ordered on Amazon some patches and it's actually tire plugs. So um, now I'm just going to keep those in the car so I don't have to get the spare tire out and stuff. I could just patch that tire real quick and get that over to the shop to have them properly fix it. So it's one of those things where it's a 2018 Odyssey van. They put the spare tire like kind of in the front of the car. So it's right behind the cabin seats for the driver and passenger. And you had to navigate around the floorboard, pull up the carpet to actually get the spare tire, but only half of it is visible. So you had to kind of like awkwardly angle it to try to get it out. It was a horrible experience, like horrible Honda engineering there. But other than that, the car is awesome. I think that's the last time I'm going to use that spare tire. And said, now we just have a plug kit that's in her car and we have an inflator. So, you know, we have that option too. Yeah. Having worked on my own cars, I, I maintain, you just proved the point. The people who design the cars are not the people who use or work on the cars. Yeah, definitely agree there. So the other pick that I'll pick is uh, something called, you know, it's an extension within Visual Studio Code and it's called Live Share. It's made by Microsoft and my coworker and I were playing around with it. It's really awesome. There are uh, some other editors have this functionality as well, but now it's in VS Code and it allows you to create a session. You can also share your server. So if you have a Rails server running and you can also share your terminal, but what it allows you to do is have multiple people on a audio call as well as a screen sort of a pseudo screen share where you are able to both be working on the editor at the same time. And it pulls in your own extensions into this new session. So all your key bindings and everything that you are already familiar with, you can still use in this one shared session. So you can both be chugging away and coding at the same time in different files and, you know, kind of work with it. It's kind of like a on-premise IDE Google Docs uh, screen share kind of deal. It's really neat. Yeah. The the thing that was interesting when they announced it at Microsoft Connect last year, they were showing it off and it was interesting because you don't even have to have Ruby or anything installed on any of the client machines, just on the machine hosting the Visual Studio uh, live share. Yep. And so, yeah, it all runs through your IDE, through your... Uh, Ruby VM and does all the work on your machine. And so, yeah, you can share it to anybody who has VS Code or Visual Studio and it just works. Yep, pretty cool. Nate, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, it's kind of on that uh, on that same topic. 
One of the challenges that I've got with uh, sharing through Visual Studio Code is that is previewing, and it maybe just maybe that I don't know how to do this yet, but it's it's showing. So if we're doing web development, it's showing the results on screen. Uh, so we'll make some changes in the code, then we want to go see what's happening and preview it. Um, and so because that's been a bit of a challenge, uh, you know, I pair with my teammates and I also pair with some friends uh, over the weekends and evenings. And one of the things that's worked really well for us is the Mac messages um, screen sharing, which if both if both users are on a Mac, you can uh, connect through messages. And there's a little drop down in the top uh, where their name appears and you can invite them to share your screen. And you can even grant them access to control your screen as well. And that has worked incredibly well for us. Um, but obviously it's got the caveat that both users need to be on Mac. Mm -hmm. That's it for my picks today. Awesome. That is amazing. I did not know that existed. That's really cool. Yeah, it sounds pretty handy to me. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So lately, I had been feeling rather burned out. I have complained about being burned out, I swear, like half this year. Anyway, folks kind of know what's going on in my life or what has gone on in my life over the last uh, six months or so. And some of it's just been some rough stuff. But I also got to the point where I, was, I realized that uh, the reason that I'm doing a lot of what I'm doing is to make a better life for my family and to be around for my family. And I hadn't been which led me to make a couple of decisions, uh, one of which was just to hire some people to help me out. The other decision that I made, though, was I looked at my wife and I said, we need to just go do something as a, you know, on a family trip or something. So we used VRBO, which is a vacation rental um, website, kind of like Airbnb. And we just took off for uh, basically five days and had a terrific time I mean, we didn't go very far. I live in Lehigh, Utah, and we went up to Park City, Utah, which is half hour, 45 minutes. But yeah, we just rented a condo up there, spent some time together, had a great time. And uh, so yeah, so I'm going to just, uh, I, I guess, encourage people to go find opportunities to do that kind of thing. And you don't have to go very far. Um, we, we stayed in most of the time and just played games and watched movies and stuff. So, um, so yeah, so get out and do that. Um, the other thing that I'm going to shout out about is um, one of the things that I did with my 12-year-old 12, 12 and my brother-in-law. They came out and stayed with us for, for a day. Um, and a few other of my uh, nephews was we played Rocket League on um, the Nintendo Switch. And that was a ton of fun. So I'm going to shout out about that. And having mentioned that, it also occurred to me that that's what we're talking about next week is Ruby on the Nintendo Switch using Ruby Motion, um, Amir is coming on to talk about that. So if you're looking for that episode, um, yeah, it should be cool. I think I think it's next week. It might be the week after. Um, yeah, next week we're talking to him. So anyway, uh, great stuff there. Um, uh, Buck, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. So I, I have been doing a lot of project uh, docu documentation work uh, recently because I had this... Uh, insight that the foundations of a project really matter and you know no matter how good code you think you wrote uh, how useful the functionality is if people don't uh, understand the project the functionality uh, you really failed so uh, for a while i was uh, looking for the optimal documentation system 
at first I was trying to write uh, documentation using uh, using Markdown because like everybody I'm pretty familiar with it. Uh, and I was using the read the docs service uh, to generate and uh, host, host this documentation. But I was uh, really frustrated uh, with the, the Python uh, Markdown parser that uh, it, it uses uh, and uh, the various limitations that it has. After experimenting with uh, many formats, I found a really sweet um, sweet spot, at least for me, using ASCII doc instead of uh, Markdown and publishing uh, the manuals using Antora, uh, a documentation publishing system from the authors of ASCII doc uh, itself. The reference ASCII doc implementation is written in Ruby, by the way, these days. It's the ASCII doc. Uh, ASCII Dr. Gem, and it's so cool. Uh, it, it has uh, a lot of uh, compatibility features for Markdown users. I, I think that 70% of the Markdown syntax uh, work uh, natively with uh, ASCII doc as well, but it has so much better support for simple things like admonitions, footnotes, uh, tables, uh, uh, nesting is sane. It, it, it's really amazing. It's such a joy and pleasure to be working with ASCII Doc that I, I have been wondering a lot recently how did Markdown became so famous if ASCII Doc is more or less the same format, but it has an amazing specification, all the features that you might need, uh, a ton of export options, uh, and so on. So I can um, I can heartily re recommend this. Uh, on the subject of uh, documenting stuff, uh, another small pick from me. It's a classic. It's Jekyll. I uh, I used to have a couple of personal blogs uh, that were using Octopress, and uh, for a couple of years I was posting there very rarely because upgrading Octopress was a nightmare. They stopped supporting it, so I had to constantly switch to some old Ruby profile just to just to regenerate my site and be able to publish it. So this was uh, a very very frustrating uh, experience. I played with a couple of modern static uh, site generators like Hugo, whatever, and at the end of the day. I decided to revisit Jekyll. I saw that they made a lot of progress and using it was so much simpler than uh, using Hugo. Hugo had some really long manual, a million configuration options and some really weird team configuration setup. With Jekyll, I managed to do what uh, uh, with Hugo took me one day in 10 minutes. So if, if somebody is looking to restart their blog, I think that uh, the tried and true tool is, uh, is pretty cool. And the, the final pick for me is for everybody who has a lot of notes in their life uh, and, and uh, is looking for a better way to organize them. Uh, that's the bear app. For, for many years, I was keeping track of notes to those etc. Uh, using Evernote. Uh, and it, it always bothered me that even though Evernote was pretty cool, I used like 10% of its functionality and it didn't support Markdown or any reasonable markup for, for this matter. 
uh, some colleague uh, recommended me there a few days ago and I have gradually been uh, moving uh, all of my notes there. It's, uh, it's so beautiful, simple and uh, useful, but really great to focus. Um, focused and really empowering you. So if somebody is into note-taking, I can heartily recommend this. Or uh, or mode uh, bear is not perfect. Uh, it has versions just for uh, iOS and uh, Mac OS, but I assume that most Rubyists are using this anyway, so probably for, for them it is okay. For everybody else, we've got Emacs and org mode. And that's all from me. Awesome. Well, um if people want to find you online, where do they go? Well, they, they usually go to, to, to Twitter. I'm pretty active there. I'm also pretty active uh, in the Clojurian uh, Slack for Clojure developers. And I guess system rubies go there. And everybody can find my contacts at uh, metaredux.com. That's the new JQ blog. I promise I'll do my best that this time around there are going to be interesting articles about Ruby, the future, and everything in between. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. That was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.